What's up, family? This is Jehoshaphat, and you're listening to The Upper Room Podcast. Guys, we are so excited. We're on our third week where Pastor Miller talks about women, women in church, and this week's sermon is titled, Women in Ephesus. Michael goes into 1 Timothy and some biblical studies on the women in Ephesus, and we get to see the Lord's original design for women in ministry and their walk out through Ephesus and how Paul encouraged them to walk in honor and integrity and authority. Stay tuned. Enjoy this. It's been amazing to see how God has marked the women in our community and globally. Love you guys. Stay tuned. All right, put your hand on your heart. I want to pray for you. Jesus, here we are. Your word is living and active. And I had a word earlier about your, the sword of the spirit being like a hot butter knife, that it would just cut, Lord, um, so easily and so uh, precisely, Lord, that you would dissect what needs to be dissected, that you would remove what needs to be removed, you would correct what needs to be corrected, that you would prune what needs to be pruned. But Lord, we submit ourselves uh, to your spirit and word. And I plead the blood over this teaching. I plead the blood, Lord, over those that will view it online. I ask that it would be holy, sanctified, that you would give all ears to hear what you're speaking to them. And that grace would abound in this teaching, God. Wherever wherever we land in this subject, may grace abound, Lord Jesus. May this be a point that just because there's differences, Lord, there doesn't have to be uh, disunity. There doesn't have to be division, God. We can honor those that might not honor this teaching. And um, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that, that you would make your church one, even through doctrinal issues like tonight. And so I humbly submit that before you and submit, Lord, my interpretation of this magnificent text out of 1 Timothy to you. And um, we bless you for your leadership, bless you for women in this room. I pray, Lord, that you would encounter their hearts. I pray you would encounter men's hearts too, specifically young men's hearts, that you would give them your vision for your daughters. And you would give daughters in this room visions that you have for them. And that, Lord Jesus, you would heal hearts that need to be healed. Uh, This is such a sensitive topic. And so I Uh, Come, Lord, with fear and trembling before you and the people that will hear this. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen. We'll be in 1 Timothy 2, which I'll get to in just a second. We're continuing a series on women. This is the third installment. We took a break last week. Aaron Smith taught on uh, the Father, the heart of the Father. And it was just such a fascinating, powerful, uh, creative way to preach. I love Aaron's preaching style. Uh, I'm just so proud of him. And uh, I love that message on the father. I told him it was one of the best messages I've ever heard on uh, God as a father, and it is so needed in this generation. So he preached that at Envier, and I said, you've got to preach it again. So were y'all here last year, last week? It was so, so good. Um, And it fits in the vein of what we've been discussing. So uh, God's design for women. Uh, Week one, we looked at the Genesis 1 and 2 accounts, specifically Genesis 2, verse 18, where God in the Edenic state of everything being perfect, everything being in order, him declaring everything is good, he found something that wasn't good. And it was that Adam was alone. And I just presented to you the first description of Eve that she was called the Ezer, an Ezer for Adam. And Ezer is a helper, it's a helpmeet, it's someone that comes to assist 
uh, someone in need. It's used 21 times in the Old Testament. Two times was it attributed to Eve. Three times to assisting nations that were coming to assist Israel as they fought enemies. And then 16 times it was attributed to God. And in those contexts, it's God coming as a deliverer. It's God coming as a helper. And so I presented to you, I felt like God was saying it wasn't good because Adam was going to face an enemy alone. And that Eve came alongside as a helpmeet because there was a snake in the garden. And that fits the context of Ezer. It's, it's, it's warlike help. And, uh, and that Eve, this is another point to that message. If you haven't heard it, you can go back and listen to it. But that Eve wasn't created to serve Adam. She was created to serve with Adam which includes serving Adam, but it also includes serving with him, that there was a divine partnership, there was a harmony, there was a union and a oneness that the two of them had. And I just wanna contend for that harmony and oneness between the genders. Uh, and then the second week, I talked on 1 Corinthians 14, which is a fairly restrictive text towards women, and just unpack the context of that. And hopefully you got some revelation and it actually propelled you to do your own study um, in what was happening there at the church at Corinth, which was a complete gong show, like what, what Paul's addressing as an apostle. He's just bringing order to chaos. And so um, that's another teaching. And so tonight I want to look at 1 Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Before I do that, I want to talk about Jesus. <laughs> and I want to talk about Jesus' approach to women. Jesus in all, uh, in, in, in the purest, most sanctified way, he was a feminist. He came and broke cultural norms in the way that he related to women. Uh, things that he did as a rabbi, most rabbis did not do in associating with women, allowing rabbis to uh, learn the Torah, allowing rabbis to follow, allowing women to follow um, him. Uh, my favorite account is John chapter four. It's the longest conversation that Jesus would have one-on-one -on -one with anyone in scriptures. And it was a woman. And uh, it was in Samaria, which Samaritans were uh, half-breeds, more or less. They were half-Jews, half-Gentiles, considered unclean. In fact, one of the phrases in rabbi, the, the rabbis used to say is, don't walk through Samaria. You may get their spittle on your sandals. And so instead of going through Samaria to go to the Galilee, you would walk around it. But it is as if with intent, Jesus said, I must go through Samaria for I have business there. And he went to a well and he found a woman. And this was a woman who had had several husbands. Um, she was coming to the well at midday which some interpret why she was coming at midday, but she comes at midday and um, she encounters Jesus. And Jesus has this conversation where he reveals to her for the first time in scripture that he's the Messiah to a Samaritan woman. Um, he then talks about water and living water and he does give her a drink of that water. She's so moved from this encounter that she goes and testifies to the man that she had met. The entire region that she was from heard about the testimony of Jesus and they were coming to Jesus because of her testimony. But church history tells her story. It's, it's extra biblical. So I'm, I'm reading other texts from around the time that the Bible was written, but her story continues. Uh, this woman had, uh, by the way, my notes are right here. It's a QR code. Um, you can read what I'm teaching. They're my preaching notes. I give them to you. You can preach this at will. If you have someone that'll listen to you, go for it. But listen to this. This woman in John 4, um, she had a name. It was Fotini. Fotini was her name. And she's actually sainted in the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. What she would go on to do, she was acknowledged 
into sainthood, however that works. But she would uh, convert, listen to this, she would convert um, her sisters, she would convert her two sons, one was a Roman commander, and she would face extreme persecution from Nero himself. So Nero uh, rose up as an emperor, and he was extremely harsh towards the church. He martyred uh, several of the disciples and just uh, persecuted the church, including this woman, uh, St. Fotini. And she, according to the documents that I read, uh, she was thrown into a dungeon of poisonous snakes, survived. She was thrown into a fiery furnace, survived. She was commanded to be blinded. The Lord healed her eyes. Even, even Nero's daughter, she was, it was thought that she was going to be blackmailed. He took her and she took uh, uh, Fotini into the king's treasury. And it was an attempt to, to buy Fotini, but instead of her being blackmailed, she actually converted Nero's daughter. Eventually, she would be martyred in a well. She would be there for four days, and it said that she prayed, and the Lord received her spirit, and she was taken up. So this was the woman that Jesus encountered, one encounter with Jesus. This is what this woman did. It's a fascinating study. You can look it up yourself. Um, but it shows you the value that Jesus had for women. It shows you the value of how he interacted with them, what he allowed them to do. Luke 7 is a, a great account. Uh, Simon, the uh, Pharisee, wanted to invite Jesus into his home. Jesus showed up, time and place, honored all the protocols, sits in a seat. But she was in the vicinity of Jesus, and she crashed the party. She showed up with oil. She showed up with tears, and she showed up with kisses. And she fell at his feet began to anoint his feet with oil, with her tears, and began to kiss his feet. And Jesus allowed it. Jesus did not stop it. And the Pharisees offended, and Jesus uses her as a, a, a metaphor and, and begins to correct Simon. But this is in just what he says. He said, I was willing to offer all of these things from you. I wanted your tears. I wanted your oil. I wanted your kisses. But you didn't afford me the opportunity to receive them but she has given me her kisses, her tears, and she's given me her treasures, and I will not deny her for doing that. And her positioning herself that way, it actually positioned her to receive exactly what she needed, which was forgiveness, because Jesus said, your sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she's loved much. It's an example of loving Jesus much. Come on. It's awesome. Well, immediately after that story in Luke 7, we have Luke 8. And it says that Jesus began traveling around that region with his 12 disciples. And verse two says this, and also some women. And I'm assuming this woman would have been included that I just told you about in Luke seven. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, of, uh, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Don't you think Mary was thankful for Jesus? Just evicted those seven demons that had made their home in her heart. Uh, Joanna, the wife of uh, Chiza, which was Herod Stewart, so she was one of great wealth. Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support, contributing their support out of their private means. Women were supporting the ministry of Jesus, and they were following Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus. Many think in Luke ten, these women were ones that were sent out to heal the sick, to cast out demons. They were empowered to do ministry, and so we can see again Jesus is. Uh, inclusion of women needs to be noted in light of the cultural norms that surrounded him. He was a renegade of sorts when it comes to uh, women. 
And so I want to look at this text tonight because t- this text tonight is one of the most prohibited texts when it comes to women. Paul actually states, I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And I want to give you context for this because if you just take this one verse and slap it on an Instagram post where a woman's teaching, you're like, well, the Bible does say that. What does it mean? Let's look at that today. Is that cool? Let's look at what the Bible has to say um, about this text. And I want to tell you that this text is a uh, theological war zone. Like, it's just worth mentioning. There's bullets buzzing. There's bullets flying. If you Google this text, you will get a lot of interpretations from a lot of people much smarter than me. I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm a biblical student. And I've put a lot of time, prayer, and energy into this study. And um, I, I'm not just interpreting this one text based on this one text. I'm looking at the meta narrative of scripture. But I want to also understand what is Paul addressing What did he mean when he wrote this? And so I'm just gonna humbly present this to you. Search it out yourself. But me, the elders here, we have wrestled with this text. We're in an incredible conversation around uh, women and women's roles and men and eldership and deacons. We're in the process of writing a paper about this. And so you'll hear a position paper from the upper room in the coming days. But 1 Timothy chapter one, Um, Paul is writing to Timothy. Let me tell you about Timothy. Timothy's a young disciple of Paul. Paul calls him a spiritual son. In fact, Paul would say, I have none like this one. He was very dear to Timothy and he entrusted him as an overseer at the church in Ephesus. And so Timothy is overseeing the church at Ephesus and Paul writes him a letter. Uh, These are called the uh, uh, pastoral epistles. It would be 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. They were young pastors and he writes them Uh, epistles to help them lead in the church context. Um, Elders and deacons are spoken in both of them. I want to tell you that elders are primary overseers of local churches. And I want to tell you you have amazing elders here at the upper room. Uh, Some of them are in this room. You have elders that love you. You have elders that I'm submitted to. Elders are the authority. Pastors mentioned once in the New Testament. Isn't that wild? Ephesians chapter four, it is one of the offices, but I believe local churches should be governed by elders, uh, served by deacons, which we'll get into that at some other time. Um, And I wanna make this the case that not all teachers are elders. Uh, We're gonna get into a teaching text here. I wanna make the case that not all teachers are limited to elders, but they are submitted to elders. They're submitted to elders. They're submitted to uh, the local doctrines of the church. And, and so this is my heart. My heart is to empower women in their callings without exclusion in the local body submitted to overseers and the Holy Spirit. Women submitted to eldership and the doctrine of that church. So Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 is where we'll start. You got your Bibles? Let me hear them. There we go. All right. I love the pages. Um, I love that you bring your Bible. First Timothy 1, here, here's, here's the framework for the letter. Just as I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus. We know that Timothy is at Ephesus so that you would instruct certain people, say certain people. So there's certain people in Ephesus that are teaching strange doctrines. They're not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to useless speculation rather than the advance, rather than advance the plan of God which is by faith, so I urge you now. Paul makes an awesome statement here in verse five, but the goal of our instruction, the goal of our teaching is love. From a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Some people say some people. Again, certain people, some people have strayed 
from these and have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or matters about which they are making confident assertions. So he's writing this letter to address some of these people. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, he commends Timothy. He says, I command, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight of faith, keeping faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and shipwrecked their faith. I think Paul's addressing those that have shipwrecked their faith. He actually names them in verse 20, and he's addressing these certain people. So let's go to our focus text here. Next chapter over, 1 Timothy chapter two. Um, the beginning of the text, he talks about universal prayer, prayer for kings, uh, really beautiful. And then verse eight, he gets into specific instructions. I'm gonna read it in total and then I'll unpack it. So 1 Timothy two, starting verse eight. Therefore, I want men, say men. Amen. So he addresses the men first in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and dispute. Likewise, I want women, say women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive apparel, but rather by means of good work as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman, say a woman, must quietly receive instructions with entire submissiveness. But I do, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. But woman will be preserved through childbirth if they continue in faith, love, sanctity, and with moderation. So I wanna make some claims right out of the gates. I wanna tell you what I don't think Paul was saying, and then I wanna tell you what I think Paul was saying, and then I'm gonna give you uh, my arguments as to why. Here's what I don't think Paul was saying. These are in your notes. First thing I don't think Paul was saying is that women are more easily deceived than men. That's one of the takeaways of this for some. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived. She became the wrongdoer. Therefore, women are more easily deceived than men. Point number two, I don't think Paul was saying this. Women should not have any authority over men or ever teach in mixed audiences in the church. Again, there's varying inconsistent degrees of application for those that believe this, but I do not believe when Paul said, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man that this was a universal truth, a transcultural truth. I think it was specific to a situation. Third thing, uh, I believe women, <clears throat> another thing that, that I don't believe Paul was saying is that women were created, their highest priority is to birth children. This is their highest calling. I don't believe that. I believe it's a high, high calling and I'm grateful for it. But I, I, some have said this is the purpose of a woman. It's to bear children. You can read church fathers have said this. Um, I don't believe that's, that's an appropriate truth to bring from this because Paul does say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, but woman will be preserved through childbirth. So therefore, women, your role is to bear children and raise them up. Let me tell you what I do think this text means. Here's what I think it means. Number one. I think Paul was correcting and instructing. Uh, the first thing I think he was doing is he was correcting both men and women, but we're talking about women tonight. Women specifically aren't to draw attention to themselves, specifically vanity, um, this outward appearance. We'll talk about that here in just a second. That's 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Uh, women are not to usurp authority. It's not having authority, it's usurping authority. Uh, the third thing, uh, women are not to teach heresy. <laughs> I think some of the things that were being shared in the context at the church of Ephesus were actually false. I think they are some of the certain people that Paul was addressing that we just read in chapter one. 
They're not to teach false doctrine. They're not to teach myths. They're not to teach things that are speculative. They're not to claim and assert things towards the Torah in confidence that aren't true. I think Paul's correcting that. The last thing is that women are saved and preserved through childbirth. If Eve was deceived, women are preserved or saved through the birth of a child and his name was Jesus. I think Paul's pointing to the messianic context there. That Eve was deceived, but they will be saved. It says that the woman, it's the same woman, will be preserved or saved through bearing a child. I think it's Genesis 3.15, the seed that would come to the earth, that would crush the head of the serpent, therefore redeeming the fall and redeeming Eve. Let me give you more context to that. Are you guys good? All right, first correction. First correction was this. Women were drawing attention to themselves. This is fairly easy to see. Paul is addressing heart attitudes. Throughout this passage, it's heart attitudes. Uh, The first posture of heart he gets after are men. Men are to lift up holy hands. I don't think this is an instruction on how to worship, although I think it's fair play to say that you can lift your hands and worship. Paul's saying that here. But I don't think he's making the point and command of saying, lift, lift your hands. I think it's a posture of surrender of heart. He's saying, hey, you who are angry and quarreling, surrender that to the Lord by lifting up your hands and praying. He's addressing a heart condition in the men. <clears throat> Hearts that are loving, forgiving, peaceful towards one another. The point of this exhortation is not the physical act, but the inward act of the heart, surrendering to the Lord. And then he gets after women. It's a little more specific with women, but this is what he said. Women were drawing attention to themselves. In verse nine, Paul addresses the heart attitudes towards the women. I want women to be modest and discreet. And he, he shows them what that looks like. It's with braided hair, gold, and jewelry. Be careful what you're wearing because it's communicating something. Now, who has braided hair in here tonight? What's up, girl? Your braids look good. Now, we can all read this and know that it's in context to a culture where Paul's addressing what braided hair meant to the people in Ephesus. Now, braided hair in this context, it looks good. We had tons of them today that had braided hair. I got braided hair. We don't think twice when we see women with braided hair. We don't think of 1 Timothy chapter 2 because we know it was cultural. And Paul was addressing not necessarily, it's it's not about what they're wearing. It's not about uh, the outward things. It's about the inward things that the outward things expose. So the outward expression was exposing something inward, which I was like, Lord, what would that look like today? And I I felt like the Lord said, Instagram. Like, I think some of you need a letter from Paul based on what you're posting online. (laughs) It's like confessing one thing in here, but then you got these. My God. You know what I'm saying? It's like, where's your filter when you're taking that selfie? Because what you're doing in here, it's not represented on what you're posting. And what it's, what it's communicating is something is crying out on the inside of you. What you're wearing externally is communicating something about your heart internally. Check that heart and put some clothes on. Check that heart and be careful what you post. Think about it. Honestly, it's communicating something. And these women were posturing themselves in the context at the church at Ephesus and they were drawing attention to themselves based on what they were wearing. It is a good word. 
some of you are like looking at your Instagram now, like <laughs> delete, 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 delete. It's true though. People are watching. Your life is a witness. We have to bring alignment. If we're doing this, our lives have to line up to the one that we're surrendered to. From what we wear, how we talk, what we post. And Paul is saying, you guys need to check your heart. Reject vanity. Reject the temptation to find value in external appearance. To draw attention to yourself. It is a needed word in Dallas, Texas. We are very plastic. You go to certain parts of Dallas and you are just so aware of what people are wearing, what they're driving. I mean, and we just have a bunch of, you know, 35 people making $30,000, $35,000 by living like millionaires. Credit cards. It's just, you got to check yourself and the rat race that you can get into, the... The, the, you just, man, you get on that treadmill and it doesn't slow down. And he's saying, get off that treadmill, man. Surrender your heart. Again, put some clothes on. <laughs> and oh, this could go to dating. This could go to a lot of practical places in your life. It's like those external realities are revealing something internally. And Paul is addressing that. He's addressing the posture of their heart. And so, um, you know, uh, the, the text continues, but... You know, there's four, five things he's addressing. I, I've mentioned four of them in the context of what they're wearing and, and then being submissive and teaching. And then the fifth thing is that they can't have authority. And, and I, all of this is one stream of thought. And so it's easy to foresee, for us to see that some of these were cultural, but others aren't. And I think all of this fits in the context of the culture in Ephesus because of women's role in pagan practices in the city. And so I want to give you kind of the backdrop to Ephesus because it's worth us understanding, I believe, in, in light of what these women were doing and in light of the coming text that we need to unpack. So Ephesus was the center of, uh, of, of the temple of Diana. Ar- Armidas is, uh, is, is another term for her. And her temple, uh, it was built... It was built uh, 600 years prior to the church being planted in Ephesus. It had been around for a while. Uh, It had been destroyed twice, and this was the third rendition of the temple, and it was the seventh wonder of the world in antiquity. It was was something known throughout the world that the temple of Diana, uh, its its magnitude, um, its, its... how big it was. It was, it, was, it was crazy how big it was. It was 350 by 180 feet. It had 127 columns that were 60 feet tall. That's six stories tall. And they were all made of marble. Uh, the center of their society was this temple. There were banks inside the temple. There was commerce and trade. And inside the temple, there were female priestess. And these priestess would have patrons that would come and they would pay and prostitution was happening in the temple. And as they engaged in prostitution, they were actually communing with the goddess who is Diana. It's, 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 there's thorough, thorough research you can do on the temple of uh, Diana. 
and Artemis, just the, the, the god of Artemis. Um, N.T. Wright, who is a uh, thinker, he, he wrote about this and spoke about this. I heard him, he called this a female-only cult. I, I think they actually had male priests as well, but it was predominantly female. And he said, the women ruled the show. This is N.T. Wright. The women ruled the show and they kept the men in their place. Uh, Belleville, who does commentary, um, has some, some good writings in regards to women and men. Uh, she said this, the women were influenced by the cult of uh, Artemis, in which the female was exalted and considered superior to the male. This made Artemis and all her female adherents superior to men. And you can actually see the prominence of this temple, the prominence of this stronghold over this region in Acts chapter 19 when Paul shows up and starts preaching. Paul starts preaching, he turns this city upside down and the officials and authorities were upset at Paul. And so they start to complain to the ruling authorities that could actually persecute Paul. And in Acts chapter 19, verse uh, 26, look at this. Uh, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people from false gods. They're upset saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but they're upset about this. And they're specifically upset because what's happening in Ephesus, not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into dis disru uh, dis disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worships, this was her influence over Asia, will be dethroned from her magnificent. Verse 28, when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out saying, great is who? Artemis of Ephesians. So this was the God of Ephesus and this was their identity and Paul comes and flips it upside down. It's actually amazing, you can look at what the church father said because uh, in the 400 AD, so this temple would last 400 more years, but when it was overthrown, the saints in Ephesus, <laughs> you can Wikipedia it, they have this, this phrase, I'm not gonna quote it verbatim, but they're basically like, this demon has been dethroned. The church of Jesus Christ is here. It's, it's really a profound thing. The church fathers were, they didn't play games. <laughs> but this is the backdrop for what was happening there. And I share that with you because it, it, it does, if, if, if this was an influence, if this was leaven, no matter how strong this influence is, and again, in the war zone, there's like, there's battles around, well, what did they actually believe? And where is it only women only? I don't know. But I do know this, is that this leaven was present within the church at Ephesus. This leaven would have been present. And these women who were posturing themselves fit the demographic of those that would have participated in temple pagan practices, wow. worshiping Diana. Wow. It involved external appearance. And it also involved not honoring men and submitting to men, specifically in the role of teaching. And so... We'll move to our second point. Our second point is, is a point of correction, and it's this, women were usurping authority. They were negatively, negatively stepping into a position authoritatively, and it was out of order, and Paul's correcting them. It's also worth mentioning that, that Paul goes women in general, and then he specifically focuses on a woman. It's, it's very specific, a woman. So 
Some have thought that he's addressing a specific woman or a specific couple at Ephesus in his writing. I don't know. But we do know that it's singular. He's addressing a woman. And and he specifically says that they can't teach and it's connected to them teaching authoritatively. And so here's one of the hiccups. And this is where like the big weapons come out in this conversation. It's actually around this word authority. Because in the original language, it's not the common word used for authority. Whenever the Bible uses the word authority, it's exousia. Say exousia. So exousia is the Greek word for authority. It's used close to 200 times in the New Testament. Anytime healthy authority or governmental authority is mentioned, Jesus' authority, it's exousia. But this word, exercise, it's authentini. Authentini. So let me, let me talk about exousia first, then we're gonna talk about authentini. You got your notes out? Because it's in there. So... <clears throat> Here's examples of exousia, just so you can see it. Uh, Matthew 7, 29. It says, for Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority, one who had exousia. So this reads the same in English up on the screen, authority, but it's different in Greek from the 1 Timothy 2.12 text. So this is having exousia, not as the scribes. So they're talking about Jesus teaching authoritatively with exousia. Matthew 8, 9. This is the centurion. For I am also a man under exousia, authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does this. Why? Because he's a man under authority, and as he's under authority, he's been given authority to lead those underneath him. This is exousia. Uh, Titus 3, which I mentioned because Titus is a brother book to 1 Timothy. Paul uses exousia. Titus 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to the exousia, to the authority, to be obedient and to be ready for every good deed. So the common word for authority is exousia. But this word, authentini, theologically, I'm going to give you a big word here. You ready for it? It's hopox legomenon. Thank you. Hopox legomenon. A hopox legomenon, it's, it's not just in theological work, in, in grammatical literature, a hopox legomenon is a word that is rarely used in a language. It's a rarely used word. Like in a body of text for the scriptures, take scriptures for example. Um, suitable, Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. We're gonna make a suitable helper. Helper is easier, but suitable. Don't know the Hebrew word for it. It's a hapax legomenon. It's only used once, and it's in the context of describing Eve. It's not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. So that's a hapax legomenon in the Old Testament. But this word authentini is a hapax legomenon in the New Testament. So what you do is then you search outside sources in that day to see if you can find any other occurrences in manuscripts so it will help you interpret why did Paul use this word and what did it mean? That's how you interpret a hopox legomenon. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a little bit about the word authentini, but here in modern day context, I, started, I was like, are there any hopox legomenons today? And so I Googled it and I was doing some research and I found this guy named Vsauce on YouTube. Don't know if you know Vsauce. I don't know much about Vsauce. I've only watched about a five-minute clip from Vsauce. So if Vsauce has other stuff, I'm not endorsing it, but I did see this one thing. Uh, Vsauce was talking about a hopox legomenon culturally, and he found a word, quizaciously. 
quizaciously. Now, I didn't know what quizaciously means, but it means this. Quizaciously means uh, in a mocking manner. And he Googles quizaciously. And Google, all the algorithms start searching all the content, all the words found on the internet, and only one link pops up. And it was from an older document where someone used this word in a, in a really rare way. And he was saying, this is a modern day hophox legomenon, quizaciously. And so now if you actually Google quizaciously, this guy Vsauce has actually put it into modern language again because now there's memes with quizaciously. But it wasn't a common word until Vsauce introduces it. And he was making a point that there's certain words that have just become extinct in languages that we no longer use. That's a hopox legomenon. Uh, there's a book called To Tell Her Story. It's a book by uh, Ninja Gupta, and he writes about this. And I wrote this quote, it's behind me. One of the most common words in the Greek, he's talking about hopox legomenons. One of the most common words, this is not a hopox legomenon, but one of the comments, common words <laughs> in Greek, I know, I actually like that I was flowing. It's like, is he speaking in a tongue? Um, one of the most common words in Greek is, is chi, which means and. It occurs approximately 500,000 times in all existing ancient Greek texts, Homer, Herodotus, and beyond. Let's take a somewhat common word, anthropos, anthropos, which means person. We find it 15,000 occurrences. The most common word for authority in the ancient world is exousia, which appears 1,500 times in Greek literature. Again, 200 times in the New Testament. <clears throat> what about authenteo or authentini? If we tried to include the maximum number from antiquity, we would come up with about five to possibly 12. There's a bait, debate which occurrence are considered legit. But he, he's making the point that this is pretty much the definition of a rare word. Now, here's one of the things we do. We don't develop theology around a, a hopox legomenon. There's various opinions, various conversations around this definition. And it is pretty substantial. We have substantial evidence that the use of this word would have been negative in those other references. In fact, one of them is actually referencing uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a verb used for someone attempting to murder someone. So it, it's a level of control. It's a level of dominance. And so when Paul's using this, he's using this in the negative sense, which to me would say it's a woman who is usurping authority. It's a woman that's taking authority and Paul's putting her in her place. Very directly. Very directly. This word could be translated to dominate, to usurp, to take control. Again, even suicide or murder are connected to it. Um, Paul is prohibiting one from doing that in the context of a church in Ephesus. Uh, when I think about that, when I think about a woman's desire to do that or what would motivate a woman to do that, I think about uh, God speaking to Eve after the fall. And in Genesis chapter 3, 16, he says this to Eve. He says, child uh, labor pains will increase, but he says, your desire will be for your, home, uh, for your husband and he will rule over you. It talks about the twisted dynamics between man and woman. The harmony that they once had is now distorted and twisted. And I think that is what Paul is addressing right here. Uh, another context where a woman did this is actually when Jesus is writing to the church at uh, Thyatira. 
It's Revelation chapter two. He addresses seven churches. But in one of the churches, he says, I have this against you. And in Revelation 2.20, he says this, um, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess as in teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. And says, I've tolerated her and I've given her time to repent. But if she does not, I'm gonna throw her and her disciples on a sickbed. Jesus could have said, don't you know, didn't you read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12? I don't allow a woman to exercise authority in a community. He doesn't address, he addresses what she's saying. And so I don't think the, the question here in this text is can a woman teach? It's how a woman teaches and what she teaches. But woman and authority, let's, let's just think about the overarching narrative. Woman, women can't have authority over men. Think about this for a second. What do you do with women who are quoted in parts of the Bible? Like, they, they made declarations that are now eternally written as authoritative in Scripture. Like, Anna prophesied over Jesus in Luke 2, 38. You have the song of Elizabeth in Luke 1, 42, 45. You have Mary's song in Luke 1, 46 through 45. You have Miriam, Miriam has a lot to say in the book of Exodus. In fact, one of the prophets said that Miriam led with Aaron and Moses authoritatively. She was one of the leaders. And then don't get me started on Deborah. <laughs> Deborah Judges 5, she was a judge. She didn't just speak authoritatively, she was the authority as a judge over the nation of Israel. And so sometimes I just think, I, I'm, I'm not, this isn't about, I, I'm not like women rule the roofs. This is not, I'm not trying to create a feminist movement. I'm just trying to bring a healthy context for women and specifically how this verse has been used to say, hey, you can't teach. You're relegated to the kitchen and kids. I'm saying that that, that is not a healthy interpretation of this text, at least this text alone. Even, even in modern day context, like how it's extrapolated and how you, you take this one truth and then extend it, it's so varied in application. Like I'm thinking about Elissa Smith, who she sung, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. This is how I fight my battles. You ever heard that song? That, that was a, she wrote that in the prayer room by herself. I asked him to pre, uh, come up and sing after I preached in 2017, whenever it was, we recorded it. We put it on YouTube, not thinking it was anything other than just a moment. Michael W. Smith picks it up and the entire church has been singing that song, at least you know, in 18, 19, 20, it really, really was a song that everyone sang but it was birthed in the heart of a woman to be sung authoritatively across the church. I, I just like, well, what do we do there? And, and I, know that, I know that there's some other conversations that come into this context, but I just, I just, I just don't think this text is speaking to that. It's, it's a negative connotation. So the third thing that I wanna address, and I'm gonna land this in about 10 minutes, just so you know. The other thing I'm gonna address is thir the third correction. Look at this. Um, <clears throat> I, think, I think potentially, and this is, this is something that through my studies, what I've concluded, is that a woman was poten potentially teaching heresy and, and specifically some of the pagan practices, roles of women. I think there was a twisted creation account, birth rights, and, and uh, Dianus' role in the laboring of a woman and giving birth to a baby. Um, there's evidence that, that in that pagan culture that she was very active in that, that, that she would actually save women through, through and help them deliver the baby. 
Um, I'll, I'll show you evidence of that in just a second. But in verse 13, it says, for it was, it was let me walk through this. Uh, so we've addressed, let me say this, we've addressed how they were speaking. So they were speaking uh, by usurping authority. And now we're addressing what they, were, what they were speaking. I think Paul's addressing what they were speaking. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And th- this, is, this is an important text. I think he's speaking to headship, uh, submitting to and honoring the husband. Um, <clears throat> headship is something we can talk about uh, in a future date, but I, I do think headship's in play. And, and there, is a, there is a submissive role, wives to husbands. Um, we can talk about it at a later date, but, but Paul says, you know, it was, it was Adam who was created first, then Eve, which he could have been correcting. This is plausible. He could have been correcting the creation account because uh, it could have been in pagan practices, miss strange doctrines that women were created first. He's saying, no, Adam was created first, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived and became the wrongdoer. Uh, this is Paul using, I think, a very specific example of a woman being deceived. <laughs> this is happening here. Hey, it's happened before, and it happened at the beginning. Again, not universal, but circumstantial to what's happening in Ephesus. Addre- he could have been addressing a couple. He could have been saying, hey, you need to come under your husband and ask him questions and be submissive to him. I would agree with any and above any of those, those interpretations. Um, but I do believe he was addressing her teaching, uh, not just how she shared, but, but what she was sharing. And, and, you know, I, I look at this, uh, I read 1 Timothy chapter 1 uh, for a reason, because Paul is addressing certain people. He's addressing uh, uh, certain people that were teaching strange doctrines. I, I, the phrase in, in verse 7, it says, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about. I think Paul's bringing context here to the law and to Torah. And listen, it was Adam first, then Eve. Adam wasn't deceived first, it was the woman. I think he's, he's giving instruction here. And, and it could be that he was addressing, again, uh, teachings of the cult that was Artemis. Um, we have evidence, because from here he says, I'll get that in a second. Let's, let's think through, because uh, he's gonna go into, she's preserved through childbearing. Um, correcting pagan practices, myths that could have been around the creation count, but also through the, the practice of birthing children. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. In 350 BC, so 300 years before Paul's writing this letter, in 356 BC, the second time this temple was built, it was destroyed. It was set on fire by a guy. And, and amazingly enough, in 356, the day that this temple, the temple of Dianus in Ephesus, the day it burnt to the ground, Alexander the Great was born. Same day, Alexander the Great was born. And this is what myth tells us. This is how they interpreted that circumstance through the lens of the cult that they were under. They said this, the night Alexander was born, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world, was burnt down as the goddess was not there to protect her temple but she was busy to attend the birth of the boy who would later become a legend and a leader. That's a filter that could have been used in talking about birth pains and Artemis' role in women. I don't know. But I do think Paul is addressing whatever heresy is being spoken. And this is the solution. So all that to say, if you're not with me, get with me here. He says this, put up uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or 1 Timothy 2.12, our text. Thank you, buddy. Uh, I don't allow a woman to exercise, but to remain quiet. Go to the next verse. 
For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But the next verse continues. Now this word woman isn't the original text. A lot of your translations will have a parenthesis. So the woman was deceived, but will be preserved. That word for preserved is salvation. It's sozo. So that woman who is deceived will be saved in childbirth? No, not in childbirth. That woman will be saved through childbirth, through the bearing of children. I think this is a prophecy about the seed that would come that would redeem the curse and Eve. His name is Jesus. Even Jesus, let me address one quick thing because I said it earlier. We, we say that uh, childbearing, in, in antiquity, childbearing was the highest priority for women. It was to bear children and raise them. And you see this in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, a woman exclaims, Luke chapter 11, verse uh, 27. Look at this. Luke chapter 11, verse 27. Uh, Jesus is teaching. And while he was teaching, one of the women in the crowd, so a woman raises her voice and says this, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now, she was actually exclaiming like, Mary, don't go yet. Don't spoil it for me. Don't spoil it. They're like, Mary, your mother is the greatest of mothers. Like, this is the highest value and honor that we can give to you is to honor your mom. And, and Jesus could have said, yeah, did you know she was a virgin? You know the persecution she went through? He could have acknowledged that, but he doesn't. He gives a new priority. Look at what he says. But he said to them, on the contrary, blessed are those women who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed are the women who hear the word of God and observe it. That's fire. She will be preserved through childbirth, if they continue in faith, love, holiness with moderation. Faith, love, sanctity or holiness with moderation. Eve was deceived. Is Paul emphasizing the fall of the women or is he emphasizing the restoration that came through the birth of the Messiah? Mary delivered the, the Messiah. So here's your takeaways, ready? Told you I'd be done in 10 minutes. Here's your takeaways. Your heart posture is the main emphasis for men, women, and a woman. It's a heart posture. It's a heart posture of submissiveness. It's a heart posture of faith. It's a heart posture of moderation and subjecting yourself to, I think, elders, church leadership, because Paul's gonna move into that in 1 Timothy chapter three. Second takeaway, women, you should reject any temptation to manipulate others or attract attention using your feminine beauty and instead show a submissive heart. And specifically, I think wives, one of the ways you honor your husband is by honoring him and respecting him and to submit to him. I think, I think, I think there is an honor and respect in a woman that is a wife submitting to their husband. Uh, number three, we cannot use this text to limit women under the authority of a local eldership to teach the word of God in mixed companies. I just don't see it. Um, fourth, the issue is not women teaching, but how and what they teach. 
Can they teach? Yes. But how they teach and what they teach matters. Amen? Amen. So I want to pray, I want to pray for those in the room, um, specifically women. Was this helpful? Take these notes with you. Like, don't, I mean, listen to me, especially if I'm your pastor. I know we have visitors, but listen to me. I'm under it. But, but take this to the Lord. Wrestle this out. Go deep on these subjects. They're important subjects. Because the, the, the spirit of this age is undermining. Uh, it's undermining these dialogues. It's undermining your sexuality. It's attempting to redefine that. Gender. There's something so beautiful about women and the feminine spirit. There's something so beautiful about men and, and the masculine side of God. Like we need to celebrate our differences. But we need to see that these differences, we need one another. They do complement each other. Husband and wife, brother and sister, mother and father. We need that union and oneness. And so I'm just contending that women, I don't want you to feel excluded from ministry. I want you to submit your heart, listen to the word of God, and do what the Lord tells you to do, to be activated in this. Amen? So Holy Spirit, women, would you stand up? I just want women to stand up. Would you lift your hands to the Lord? And I just want to ask the Holy Spirit, are there, have there been any limitations, any any ways that you felt um, yeah, any way that you felt like a second class or undervalued daughter that there's been there's been things that you have uh, been told that you, you can't do, specifically in calling, specifically things that the Lord would speak to you. I've, I've talked to a woman through this series, and she's, she's applied to get her biblical degree. She's wanted to do it, and this was, this was what she needed to pursue that calling into education, into uh, studying the scriptures and going deep in a career, potentially being a professor, potentially just, I feel Holy Spirit, you're giving women wings and we need their voice. Lord, we need the Deborahs, we need the JLs, we need, Lord, those wailing women in, in Jeremiah 9. Lord, Philip's daughters that were prophetesses. I think of Junia in Romans 16, 7. She was, an, she was an apostle. Lord, I'm mindful of Phoebe who ran with a letter, Paul's letter to the church at Romans. Lord, we have evidence of Priscilla. Priscilla. What a leader and teacher, a church planner, Lord. Lord, would you give women a vision for their design in you. It's nothing more than them seeing their design in you, Holy Spirit. Would you just power wash them? Would you just release, Lord, a flood of your 
perception, your perspective, your identity, your authority, your view, your framework of their framework, Lord, how you see them to be today, them as the apple in your eye. Would you set your fire inside of them, oh God? Would any and all that can be burned up be burned up, Lord? Would you, I just see the Lord like, I just see things, things breaking off, things breaking off. In Jesus' name, just, just religious structures, religious constraints. I just declare where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty tonight. Liberty, submit to the Holy Spirit, submit to the Holy Scriptures, submit to a local body and fly in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. There's evangelists in this room like Mary. I have seen the Lord. I just see some of you boldly proclaiming the gospel, boldly being sent into marketplace areas, into just... Wow, I just see there's some street preachers in here. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for freedom that's found in you. Galatians 3, 26. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, male or slave nor free man or male nor female, Lord. You're saying all are one in Christ Jesus. We just declare unity of heart, unity of mind. If there's a woman...